0: Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In this episode, we are talking to Nadia Ahmed, who is an author, attorney, law professor and environmental justice advocate. We first met when we were talking on a panel at an annual conference organized by the Association of Environmental Sciences and Studies. The panel was on creative communication for environmental action. I was really inspired by Nadia's discussion on environmental justice and the importance of centering more voices from people of color, especially in frontline communities. And from that, I really felt that there was an importance in bringing her story to you. In this episode I talked to Nadia about two of her research expertise. The first being on how frontline communities are vulnerable to energy production, specifically biofuels, and the second on the concept of climate cages, which is about how the climate crisis has led to the incarceration of black and brown people. To maximize available land, space, and resources for those who are either more affluent and or more preferred race, religion, and national origin. So finally, we talk about her environmental justice activism and how that has been influenced by her identity as a hijab-wearing Muslim woman. So through this podcast, I am trying to break the stereotypes that exist in our societies. Each story, I hope contributes to dismantling these assumptions and misconceptions that we have about people based on how they identify. I truly hope that this conversation with Nadia helps you have a greater appreciation of the diversity within the human race and how that diversity is contributing to sustainable and tangible solutions to our environmental challenges. Enjoy! All right. So thank you, Nadia, for being on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. Really appreciate you making time for us, especially towards the end of the year when it starts to get really hectic. So I'm really excited to have you talk to us about your experiences of being a lawyer and then a professor in academia, and especially with your focus on environmental justice taking an approach that draws on international investment law and corporate social responsibility so that's really cool i haven't come across that kind of combination i guess of fields of interest so really excited to talk to you about that and then also just your your experiences of how your identity as a visibly muslim woman has impacted your work as an activist in academia and then also in the environmental space so We typically start with this first question to all of our guests because it is an environmental podcast. So what role has nature played in your life?
1: So for me, I was born and raised in Orlando and grew up in Altamont Springs, Florida. So for me, the natural environment was always very close. And a lot of times when people think about Florida, they think about Disney World or they think about the beaches. But a lot of times they also think about the swamp. And so for me, the swamp or the Everglades was a very magical place. The Everglades really serves as the lungs of the United States in terms of the the way that it it regrows, the ecosystem replenishes the atmosphere. And another thing that's really exciting for me about Florida was seeing that the swamp, really the technical term would be wetlands, really served as, as a way to, it was a natural way to limit sea level rise. And so... The reason why I was in Florida is because my dad moved here in the early 70s. He moved here the same year that SeaWorld opened its doors in Orlando. And he w- worked as an engineer. And so a lot of the work that he did is a lot of the work that I also work to, like, he was involved in development and construction. And so a lot of the work that I also do is related to limiting development and having more sustainable growth.
0: Yeah.
1: I went to school
0: in Florida. St. Petersburg, Florida, undergrad at Eckerd College. So I guess my familiarity was more with the, the West Coast of Florida. However, I did do an internship during my master's with the Florida Sea Grant, and part of my work was developing a water policy curriculum for high school students. And of course, the Everglades was part of that curriculum because it's such a huge part of Florida. My understanding at that point about the Everglades was that, yes, it was just a swamp that was, you know, infested with mosquitoes. But after reading more about it and the history of the Everglades and it actually being a slow-moving river, it's really fascinating kind of like the geography or like the feature of the Everglades and how much it actually, I think it covered the entire state of Florida, right, until settlers came in and started creating these canals to direct the water and converting the wetland into land, essentially. Yeah, that's really cool. So like, were the Everglades your backyard,
1: in a sense? So the Everglades is primarily centered in South Florida, but the ecosystem slash the environment of it also moves up towards uh, Central and North Florida in terms of having these river-based communities as well as a number of lakes and different types of estuaries. So for me, one of the closest river bodies was the Rocaiva River. And the Rocaiva River is the only designated scenic river in, in the state of Florida has a federal designation. Oh, wow. And so this is a special protection that is given to it. And there's other rivers that have been, that have sought to get the protection for it, including the Kissimmee River, and so that same type of natural environment with springs and ecosystems was essentially my backyard and so we grew up seeing a number of alligators we also were when we would go to to the coast we would see we would go shelling and find seashells on the shore and also see jellyfish and and even in some instances a shark or two so another thing that i really liked about growing up in florida is that everything is always alive like even if you walk outside there will always be like small lizards or critters, mosquitoes. And so that, that sense that the, the, the environment is really a part of you and really is really important for me. Yeah.
0: Oh, you totally said something that resonated with me. And you reminded me of the palmetto bugs that were on our campus. I was like, oh, they're so terrifyingly big and gross looking, but kind of cool at the same time. That's really cool that you grew up in Florida and just like your observation of nature being like everything is is alive which is so true so fast forward you know now your academic career has focused mostly on frontline communities who are most vulnerable to energy production perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how you found yourself focusing your energy and your labor on this issue because i believe you were working on the private side for a few years so what kind of like helped you or made you Make that transition. And then, in terms of your work around frontline communities, what are some of your observations and what are some of the solutions that you propose? So, gosh, I asked you three questions. Sorry.
1: (laughs) Sure. So, in terms of the first issue, I I would look at, I was always interested in, in environmental issues, but I wasn't sure about how to get involved and to develop into that issue. And two other areas that I was interested in at the same time were journalism and the law. And so this movie that I watched called The Pelican Brief, which stars Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts, is a story of another swamp out in uh, Louisiana. And so that movie, for those who may not be familiar with it, goes through the story of how these endangered pelicans are impacted by oil and gas development. And so that was a movie that really brought home to me the idea of looking at environment and the law. But when I uh, continued uh, going into the law, I didn't really have the opportunity to primarily start out as an environmentalist. I was looking primarily from a civil rights and social justice issue and thinking about getting involved in advocacy issues for, for my community, uh, which is the South Asian, Muslim, and Arab communities, especially after the wake of nine eleven. And when I got to law school, I think I just got really disillusioned in terms of uh, seeing that there just wasn't a space. It was also very difficult for me as a woman to operate in that space as well. And so I started becoming more interested in business uh, and corporate law as well as just international trade. I took a class in NAFTA and I really enjoyed it. And my professor at the time, he told me that just get whatever job you can out of after law school. And it may take you about five years or so to get to what you want to do. Like you need to just get the practice experience first. And so that's what I, I did when I graduated from law school. I ended up getting a job. It was actually hard for me to get a job, even though I went to a great law school and had a good like resume because when I would show up for the interview, this is before LinkedIn was big, they wouldn't know how I looked like. And so when I showed up, I just wasn't the fit for what would be the right fit for the firm. So I ended up taking a job in insurance uh, litigation defense, and I really, really hated it. And then I ended up going out on my own for about a year or so before I rejoined the firm that I worked for when I was a law student in Gainesville. And I worked for that firm for about four years and I really learned a lot in working in like small business areas as well as land use, zoning, and asset protection work. And then I had an opportunity to do my master's degree after my son was born and my husband was also doing graduate work. So I decided to quit my job and do my master's program in environmental and natural resources law. So this was, I was about 30 years old at the time. And I felt like I had a second wind and would wanted to really be able to do what I wanted to do. And so that's after that, I started going back to what I wanted to do, which was environmental and energy law.
0: Okay. 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 That's really cool. So did you end up going to school to get an environmental law degree as well then? Yeah, and so when I went back to get my,
1: like, as the master's in law at the University of Denver, my focus was in natural resources and environmental law. And so I took about eight classes while I was a student there uh, for my master's program. And every class I took, I had a class that focused had a paper that was due. And so after I graduated over the next year or two, I spent uh, time trying to publish those papers and, and at the time, I also took the Colorado bar and ended up working for an oil and gas company out there because that was really the only opportunity I had right away because I didn't have the geographic mobility to go find an academic job. And within about a year or so after my second child, my first daughter was born, I ended up getting a fellowship at Pace Law School in White Plains, New York. And so my husband and I moved out back to the East Coast.
0: Yeah. that's wow. Well, that's a quite a journey, but it's great that you were that you were able to like have that second win and go back to school. When you're talking about the Pelican Brief, it reminded me of when I watched that movie and I was like, this is really cool. I want to be an environmental lawyer as well. And there was also the Erin Brockovich movie as well, which was quite inspiring for me, at least in terms of like using the law as a way to bring justice to the natural environment, but also to communities that are impacted by environmental pollution from corporations. So. I haven't heard anybody else like I thought it was just me who was like inspired to like take environmental law because of those movies. So but I didn't end up doing law because I think I spoke to an international environmental lawyer who was like, sometimes you've got to make some decisions against your ethics. And at that point I was like, oh, I don't think I want to do that because I want to get into environmental law for ethical reasons. And if I ever find myself in a place where I had to choose, I don't know if that was then worth. Kind of like that effort. But anyways, I was kind of like very, for lack of a better term, very black and white about it, I guess. But yeah, I guess, have you found yourself in such a place where you've
1: had kind of like these ethical conundrums in your work? Yeah. And so for me, I feel like I confront that question every day. It's not just like on a day-to-day basis in terms of like what's in front of me, like what's on my desk, but essentially like, am I a part of this institution, this structure, like even this entire (laughs) field of the law that really doesn't actually provide justice and equality? Because what I also see uh, happening in the law is really about this idea of different power dynamics and how it's really suited more towards improving the conditions for those who are already well off and it also is really driven more by wealth maximization and the profit motive more than anything else but at the same time there's this i'd say a, a bigger battle and that is to really dismantle those systems and some of that chipping away has to be done from the inside versus coming in from the outside and so that's where i think that it is helpful to be still involved within the law to really find a space to dismantle it
0: yeah based on you know the articles that you've written it seems like it's created a platform for you to share your stories and your experiences, but also your research around the issues that you care about. So I want to go back to the question that I asked you about your research on frontline communities and focusing on energy production. Tell us about that research. There's also a term that you use, blood biofuels. If you can include that in
1: the description of your work. So for the first time I and remember like seeing my grandmother's kitchen in Pakistan, I remember the type of stove and fuel that she used. And I also saw like it would give off fumes and like she would essentially inhale them. And so that was the first time I saw this issue of biofuels and black carbon. This was in the mid 80s, but the first time that there was actually literature done on black carbon was in the 90s, but in, like in, in Western literature. And the reason why Western academics are looking at black carbon was because the problems with stoves and different types of fuel use in the third world, those emissions were coming over to the first world. So this was now an issue that they also had to examine. But what I did in my research is I stepped back and also saw that the biofuels themselves were being touted in the first world as this type of clean energy resource. But just like oil and just like natural gas, which has issues of hydraulic fracturing, as well as even hydroelectric dams, there's other social um, and environmental issues that are completely overlooked. And there's a whole industry behind it that pushes it forward as a clean energy resource. And so when I kept digging deeper in terms of my research, and there aren't that many people within the legal and environmental academia that do as much research on, on biofuels because there's this general idea that it's not a good fuel source. But I wanted to look deeper in terms of what are the environmental as well as uh, social justice consequences of this type of biofuel. And so what I found is that there was also behind biofuels, there was a number of land grabs, there was death squads, as well as life cycle analysis of the biofuels themselves that weren't being accounted for. And so if this is being promoted as a better alternative to petroleum or natural gas as well as coal, then we also needed to examine and really look at why this is also a problematic fuel source. And so even though solar and wind are the ideal energy sources for the future, biofuels are really considered a transition source and not all biofuels are the same. And so I use this term blood biofuels to describe how biofuels can also be problematic, the same way you have conflict diamonds. There's also conflict biofuels as well. And so when we go to the tank, anybody goes to the gas station, you're going to see that sticker for ethanol at the gas station. But think about, you know, what are the problems associated with the ethanol that gets into our gas tanks? Right. Because
0: they're kind of, what do they call it, like a cost benefit, right? If you're using that land to plant corn for the ethanol, then that land could either be used for food production, for communities. But there was this one interesting example that you gave in your TED Talk about these farmers in, was it Honduras or El Salvador? who In Honduras, yes. In Honduras. So I guess you can tell the story better than I can. So, tell us about that, that
1: example that you gave in, in your TED Talk. Yeah. And so what I saw happening in the Honduras example is that there was a biofuel company that had wanted this land. And so they went through a legal battle in the courts and inevitably the small farmers or the campesinos were successful in the legal battle, but the biofuel company wasn't happy with that because they actually wanted the land. So they started you know, trying to intimidate the farmers in different ways and different tactics. And at one point, some of the farmers showed up at the field. They were actually greeted with a security guards or security contractors from the biofuel company and six of them ended up getting killed that day. And it was really a concern for what was going to be happening in terms of the biofuel company wanting to use this land to be able to, to, to grow its bio crops. And this problem has replicated in a number of other areas and instances as well. And so what was also ironic about that day as well is that the biofuels were also being used for by development companies and development banks to also provide funding. And so there, there's been problems as well with how a lot of development funding is being reallocated to specific biofuel companies that are engaged in these types of activities. Yeah.
0: It makes me think, is there a way that through your work, and maybe it already exists, where you can have kind of like a certification program, sort of like a sustainable trade certifications or, you know, with the blood diamonds, you'll get a certificate. I don't know how real that is that this is not from a conflict zone. So can we do that for biofuels as well? And I mean, I don't even know how effective those type of programs
1: are. So I think there could be some labeling. But what I think also needs to happen as well is that, for example, there's certain types of biofuels, for example, like agricultural biofuels and wood biofuels, which are generated from timber that count as clean energy. And I don't think that they should have that designation. I don't think wood biomass should have a designation. Like how does clearing trees and using them for fuel count as a clean energy resource? If planting trees is really the best option for fighting climate change, why is that now a clean energy source? And so I think that would be the first step to to do away with that. And then the next step, I think, would be to have a way to, to properly account for this. And there isn't really a mechanism, even, for example, in the United States with clean energy resources in terms of how to do that. Yeah.
0: It reminds me when you're talking about your grandmother cooking in the kitchen in Pakistan. In our village, in southern India, and in Karnataka, in Mangalore particularly, people would use cow dung cakes, so basically cakes made out of cow dung as biofuel. Is that better or worse? I'm curious.
1: Yeah, and so, so in terms of life cycle analysis, one of the things that also has to be considered is how exactly is this energy source also part of the, the way of life? and how is it already included. And so there's been research done at different universities to create new types of technology. But if people aren't wanting to use the new types of technology, they're going to use what is most familiar to them. So I think also seeing like why it's important to also use specific types of resources also is an important part of that calculation. Another type of resource kind of somewhat similar, for example, is in parts of Pakistan, they would grow marijuana to use as a fuel source. And so for me as a high school, when I saw all this marijuana growing wild, I thought, oh, wow, like, I guess they're having a lot of parties here. But <laughs> my dad was like, no, they actually use it for a fuel source. And so that was really, I started thinking, okay, this is the subsistence energy resource for, for this area. And this is really what people are doing and it gives them more self-sufficiency versus having to rely on other, other places and also looking to see how much it takes to get by in the developed world versus how much it takes to get by in what our carbon footprint as well as carbon shadow is in the first world. And also I think that many people are uncomfortable with this as allocation or designation of first world versus third world. And even even looking at this idea that, okay, the third world, this is like we're third class. But really, this was the designation that was put upon us. And I think that now there's a new and expanding uh, fields of study, including within the law, that have kind of turned the colonial gaze back. And so, for example, in the field of third world approaches to international law, they're looking at law from the perspective of the third world. And how the first world has really set up the entire field of international law to suit itself and essentially taken many concepts from the third world and used them as themselves. So um, even when I was studying history in elementary school, middle school, it was always taught from the super Eurocentric perspective. And even, you know, when I, last week when they had Thanksgiving, uh, the week before my daughter had to do a project to make a, on her own, a Mayflower ship. And so I got into it with her. I was like, why don't you actually make like a real ship that came to, like, why don't you make like a slave ship? I mean, that would be actually what happened and she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I either have to do this project or I get an F. But why does she have to kind of feel like she's in this like this quandary of having to you know, just do the assignment versus me being frustrated that she's not really learning what actually happened? And so I think that that is really something that happens really early on and not just happens like when you get up to law school or even, even working, but seeing like there's just a completely different narrative out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. Gosh. Uh, I don't know what I would do if I was in your situation. I feel bad because for her, she's like, I don't want to fail by kind of telling the truth or the reality of history. Anyways, I guess that would be another conversation for another time. I was trying not, not to go down a rabbit hole. So in your research, then what are the I guess, the less problematic biofuels and then how can a regulation and governance mechanisms help promote these technologies that are inspired by biofuels?
1: So what I argue for is that there's other types of advanced biofuels and these are lignocellulosic biofuels that include algae, seaweed, or even crop residues, as well as uh, used cooking oil. Uh, These are types of biofuel that could really essentially there's enough volume of them to really provide a high number in terms of the volume that is needed to scale biofuels. The US government wanted to create a billion ton bioeconomy. I mean, exactly what would a billion ton bioeconomy look like? Is there just a push to get to a billion tons? To say, so you know, we reached a billion tons. Or is it really going to be done in a sustainable way? And so we don't have clear indication yet from the Biden administration in terms of where they want to go with this. The Trump administration really kind of continued this middle line with biofuels. But we do have some indications that Biden will be cutting back a little bit more on these these types of uh, agricultural biofuels. But I don't see the same indication with timber resources. Yeah, gosh
0: timber is kind of king right so is there something in your research that comes close enough to be like an alternative or is it just like a combination of various kind of like seaweed and then maybe like algae or cooking oil that can kind of when our powers combine (laughs) we can
1: replace timber yes so I I think Some of the problem is that we just spend so much money on other things that we don't have enough money to spend on the innovation that is needed for energy. I mean, we really need like a Manhattan project uh, when it comes to finding sustainable energy solutions. And for example, though, the oil and gas industry has spent several hundred millions of dollars on on algae biofuel, but they haven't been as successful because I think they don't have the right players in place. There was actually a 17-year-old student from Colorado who would set up biofuels like in her bedroom. So she would have her set her sleep cycle with the life cycle of the algae so she could conduct her experiments on, on the algae. And so she was really doing some of the more innovative work. And I think that some of the solutions for clean energy resources aren't going to come from the big companies and the big corporations, but they will be coming from an innovation from young people as well as those who may, may not actually have all the tools that are necessary for them. So I think there has to be more innovation as well as resources allocated to the research of a clean energy resource. Even, for example, in the Middle East, which is traditionally the home of oil and gas production as well as natural resources, they're also spending a lot of resources on trying to develop advanced uh, biofuels, especially for jet fuel, as well as for for, for running different types of uh, fleet vehicles. And the reason that they're doing that is because they also want to conserve the precious commodity of petroleum for export to us. And so they have developed the systems. Like if you're looking at Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, they're really pushing more towards renewable energies in ways that other countries, including the United States, are not. What I Would I go there and come back and look here? I feel like so backwards in terms of how far behind we are with uh, renewable energy. But they're really seeing this as a way to kind of move forward into to to kind of it's an economic model for them, not just a clean energy model, but an economic model that they want to use this and conserve this precious resource so that they can sell it to us.
0: Yeah, and then yeah, we end up being kind of dependent on them for that energy source, right? Have you seen any countries? in the global south that are kind of a little bit
1: more successful in sustainable biofuel implementation? So what I've seen countries, for example, like Costa Rica, which has gone, you know, towards like 100% renewable, is that for them, renewable energy is not just a matter of good policy, but for survival. And so the necessity has really led to the innovation. And as well, and I think that there's a lot of of biofuels which are indigenous to a certain area, and those resources are the ones that could be more properly exploited. But at the same time, the concern is that you have large companies that come in to to really come in for, for the land grabs. And so there has to also be innovation to have biofuels at a smaller scale. So the same way you have microgrid for solar or wind. There should also be a way to develop and deploy biofuels in a way that is environmentally friendly, but also economically feasible.
0: Yeah. Wow. It's I don't think I've ever had as much of an in-depth conversation around biofuels. So this has really been eye-opening for me. Thank you for, for sharing that. Switching a little bit, I wanted to talk about some of your, your recent research around about this concept that you developed called climate cages. This is more recent work. You also wrote an article on it. Tell us what that is.
1: So for me, when I looked at this concept of climate cages, I noticed that many of the responses, especially the first world responses to climate change, are looking to you know, reduce emissions. But essentially what they're also doing is they're trying to preserve capital resources as well as land, um, environmental resources for themselves because there's a scarcity of land. There's also a scarcity of capital that is available. And so invariably what this leads to, it leads to increasing prison populations, as well as increasing in climate refugees and displacement. And so this displacement and dislocation that happens creates another level of carcerality. So for example, we saw at the southern border of the United States, a large influx of migrants from, from Haiti and many of them have been dislocated and displaced for not just the most recent earthquake that had come there, but also since the last earthquake 10 years earlier. And so this constant displacement, and so they essentially show up at our border trying to have a better life, and it's that they're coming out of sheer desperation. And so this desperation that is created by this, uh, not just a climate crisis, but the, how the climate crisis also becomes a threat and multiplier to other types of conflict. We've seen this as well happening in Syria as well as in Iraq, of how conditions of drought, as well as, have led to increased uh, levels of conflict and has created a, just a, a massive refugee a crisis. And so the solution hasn't been to actually to properly house, feed and clothe them and, and integrate them into new societies. It's eventually been to create a permanent refugee status uh, for them, to detain them, as well as to, in many instances, for example, United States, to incarcerate them when they try to seek out asylum. And so even the idea of climate change also is that uh, citizenship becomes uh, one of the highest levels of, of privilege and that you essentially become boxed into your country and you're able to travel more freely based on what type of passport you have. And so this is really the idea behind Climate Cages is about incorporating how colonialism and slavery have also played a role in the climate crisis. And so in terms of having equity and inclusion, as well as proper reparations, would be to have immigration, as well as to have inclusion of having loss and damage uh, reparations for for climate change.
0: Yeah. How would we do like climate reparations, like reparations based on climate change? How is there a way to determine that?
1: So uh, Sukitha Mehta, who is a journalism professor at NYU, as well as Michael Gerard, who's a Columbia law professor, have argued that one of the ways to do reparations for climate change would be to have immigration because immigration would be a type of reparations for climate change. Another aspect of reparations would be to have loss and damage mitigations. We recently had the COP26 in Glasgow. And what was really, really distressing for me is that right after COP26, we had just this past uh, weekend over dozens of people who drowned trying to cross the English Channel. And so there was a discussion of this issue, even though this is also intimately related to the climate crisis. And so we essentially end up having this policy of let them drown and let them die. That That is climate policy internationally, is that we want to be able to protect ourselves, you know, as the United States, as the EU. And how do we do that when we have so many people that are displaced, don't have a place to live or stay? And their own governments are are, are treating and on on the brink of failure and conflict. And so what reparations would look like would be to provide for immigration as well as to provide dignity to all of these people who have been been done. And again, because there's only a limited amount of of resources, it's easier to turn away than to actually have this issue solved. Right. So...
0: What about then the, one of the solutions of investing more in the countries where the refugees are coming from? So, for example, with COP26, they said that they were going to give money to or assistance to these countries to invest in technologies and just help those communities that are experiencing the detrimental impacts of climate change. But that money never went through. I think it was supposed to go from the last, the one previous Is that a sustainable solution? And then, yeah, and how can these Western countries, former like colonial countries, like give pipeline funding in a more sustainable way where it just, it does increase resilience of the communities because it's not being done well through like sustainable international development. Like I don't
1: think that's working. And I don't think it will work because even if they talk, they're talking about a hundred billion dollars for for climate change adaptation, that's nothing. That doesn't do anything because even recently we passed a trillion dollar build back better. I mean infrastructure plan are looking to pass a larger build back better plan. That's not anywhere near the magnitude of what we need for the United States. We need around eight to sixteen trillion dollars to really get us as the United States to where we need to be. So what about the rest of the the world? I think there has to be change and adaptation that is happening. So for example, in the Maldives, they're building floating cities. And this is the way that the Maldives is adapting and really coming forward as one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change is that essentially they have to create their own solutions because they know that they cannot rely on us as the West. Exactly, exactly. I
0: was listening to the story on NPR where they were interviewing a diplomat from, I can't remember which island it was, but she was saying the exact same thing that at this point, it's almost like lip service from these countries who are actually causing like, the climate change. And so we can't wait around for them to you know, give us the money or come up with a solution. So we just have to do it ourselves. And there's just there's some sadness that came upon me just from hearing that because there's some island nations or even some nations that don't necessarily have the money to actually come up with Those kind of innovations, like a floating city, like that's super cool. But I'm sure it costs like millions of dollars to like come up with that, build it, and so it's just like it just feels like majority are gonna be left behind.
1: Yeah, there's just a lot of anxiety around it, like climate anxiety, like it's distress that everything you have will be disappearing. So even for example in Florida a quarter of South Florida will be underwater by the turn of this century. And this is Florida, like Miami's of the largest cities in the world. Imagine that they're not preparing enough. So imagine the rest of the world, which doesn't even have the resources that Miami, a city like Miami would have. And so that I think is also really distressing. And also thinking about how there's going to be a massive level of, of shift that is happening. But at the same time, I think that We're starting to see more voices from the global south rising up and we're starting to see innovation like we have before. There are parts of sub-Saharan Africa which have never had electricity and then they go from having no electricity to having solar panels. It completely changes the way of life overnight. And they also go from having no landlines and no telephones to having mobile phones completely changes the economics of of the region. Um, And I think that this same type of innovation is what is going to propel us forward. And so I think that it really, global climate change responses have to be truly international where all voices are brought to the table. And one of the key tenets of environmental justice is the idea that we have to push aside respectability politics. I mean, that we have to be able to speak for ourselves. Remember the first panel that we met at over over the summer was the same idea that we centered around that you know, we have to center the voices of those who are most impacted. And it's not that they have been silenced, it's that they have those voices have been muted. And so the more that we can elevate voices that have been impacted, the more that we can have a, an impact. Um, and I think that the momentum is really moving towards change I mean, it's really about pushing it forward and harnessing that change as well. Yeah, it
0: reminds me of the Ugandan environmental or climate activist, Vanessa Nakatos. I can't remember her exact name, but she was the climate activist who was cut out of the photo that was with Thunberg. And then she said that Vanessa the the Ugandan activist said it happened again this year where they cut her out from a photo. And I'm just like, Gosh, it just, really, can we not learn from like our past mistakes? And it's really infuriating is, yeah, it's just that we have to just get louder for ourselves. So speaking of then just voicing or making our voices louder around environmental and social justice, a big part of this podcast is how our social identities impact, influence how we interact with nature, but also how communities receive us around our own environmental work. And you did write an article about your identity as a visibly Muslim woman in academia, and then in the environmental space, and also being a mother who who experienced preeclampsia, if I'm saying that correctly, and kind of the experiences around that. So I was curious to know if you were willing to share is, how has your identity as a hijab wearing Muslim woman influenced your work? And then how has the environmental community kind of received it?
1: Well, for me, I think it was really hard for me to write the article in the first place. And I ended up publishing it just it's like it's still like I just saw the final proofs this week. But for me, it was really hard to write the article because this was really me and my most raw self, you know, as a mother, as well as a like early academic and the struggles that I faced, as well as as a law student. And I feel that a lot of people give up in different struggles that they have because they have been told no repeatedly. And so for me, as someone who is thinking about becoming a law professor, you know, most law professors go through this really cookie cutter Path to becoming a law professor. And so I really didn't have any of that. And I really also hated being an attorney as well. So I had like a a lot of strikes against me. But what I did have that worked in my favor is that I had family support. And I also had this sense that I'm not going to take no for an answer. And what really solidified it for me is like, this is when I know I'm going to be a law professor is when I went to this one meeting. And I had my own like contracts professor from law school. I met and I told him I wanted to be a law professor and he just completely like dismissed me, like acted like he didn't even hear what I said. And then I told him that I'm doing my master's degree at University of Denver, which he probably didn't think of as as a good, like, you know, Ivy League school. Like he looked at me like I was speaking in Sanskrit and then he just proceeded to ignore me the rest of that conversation. I mean, I was sitting at the lunch table with him for some program. And that for me was like, I was like, he's such a loser. And if losers like him can become law professors, then I definitely can become a law professor. And so for me, I think that was really what propelled me was like, oh, if you think I can, then let me show you. Like, I will become a law professor. Maybe I won't be a law professor at your law school, but I can still be a law professor. Because there's a lot of, I would say, a lot in the law, like this idea of, like the sense of privilege and entitlement within the law. And I think that also carries over into the space itself of the law. And so from legal academia, people are bred with a certain sense of entitlement. It also carries over into how they practice as attorneys.
0: Yeah. Wow. What advice would you give to some of our listeners who are actually students in college who are probably considering environmental law Maybe one of them is a Muslim woman who wears a hijab. One of the pieces of advice you gave was like, you know, just don't take no for an answer. That's good advice and really hard to also kind of remind yourself of that because contract professors like the one you were sitting at a table with can really make you kind of doubt your ability, capability. So is there more advice that you can offer to a burgeoning environmental lawyer who kind of has a similar identity
1: and principles? So I think part of that is also making sure to establish yourself within the field. And I think the reason why I can maybe get away with saying things like probably more freely than I could otherwise is that I've done a lot of the groundwork, you know, so I've published a lot and I felt like writing was kind of my like safe space. Like I could just say whatever I was thinking. And so at the same time, you have to like go through this whole process of publishing. And so the other piece that I had written about, you know, my process of becoming a law professor was also more of a storytelling. And even when my mom first looked at it, she's like, this doesn't have like the research, like, you know, so where's the footnotes and stuff like that. And so I did go back in later on and put more like <laughs> academic <laughs> research footnotes. Like, like one of the footnotes I put in was about biryani or like chicken nuggets. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> and so... <laughs> so my mom was not happy that I was writing about how my kids would drop food on the carpet she's like you don't need to be saying those types but I was like that's really (laughs) distressing for me like that I have to. they drop it and then I have to clean it up as well and so like because I think that's a lot of what we end up doing is like just the frequency and the amount of spills that we have to clean up as, as women is that just like clean up the spill and then and you can try to kind of limit the amount of spills that happen but you can't always do that so I think So some of that is like uh, a lot of people out there will complain a lot and do less. And so I I think that the more you actually do versus complaining, I think that also gives you more leeway and leverage to do other things as well. I mean, another piece of advice I would say is to like to be willing to take a risk. So for example, like I've quit like comfortable jobs that I've had to move on to other other positions. That I didn't even know like I would like so I was, you know, a shareholder attorney in Florida when I just basically had like quit to go do my master's. And then even after I graduated, like I wasn't sure if I would still be an academic and I worked for an oil and gas company. And I also ended up quitting that job as well, as I was still like interviewing for visiting professor jobs. And so some of that is like things like panned out for me, but I also was willing to take the risk. Like who, like, especially like saying, okay, like I finally was doing something like I was like doing well, but at the same time, like I wasn't happy. So like the sense of fulfillment and being able to do what you really want to do is is really, really critical. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. And it's also
0: what you said is you had family support through that to kind of bolster you in in a sense as well, like give you the kind of the emotional support that you need to get through those difficult times. but I really enjoyed that article. It was refreshing because I've read a lot of journal articles, but none that were just a very honest and vulnerable kind of account of your own experiences. Because like you said, that's true. This is what a lot of women have to do in terms of like being the CEOs of their households and also pursuing kind of your own ambitions professionally. So. I appreciate you adding the footnote for the biryani as well, because I was like, people need to know (laughs) what that dish is. It's delicious. But yeah, thank you for for sharing that article. And I was also just surprised that it was it was in a law journal,
1: correct? Yes, it was published in the Florida International Law Review. So it's like a real law review article. And so that's what I think is like and also not just a specialty journal, but like a real law review article. And also to think about like internal dynamics. So, for example, like the University of Florida, where I went to law school, I'm very critical of the law school in the article, is really like the flagship law school of the states, even though it has its history of segregation and really just maintaining the power structure. Then you have Florida International, which is really a burgeoning law school. It has like the best test scores in the state for bar passage and is really uh, still not able to really rise in the reputation wise as the University of of Florida. And so there's a lot of other like dynamics around that as well. And so even thinking about like how FIU would give me the space to publish this article that I felt that I'd been essentially writing on my iPhone while I was waiting in the carpool line to pick up my kids. And so I think just thinking about like the organic process of that was hard to do. And I wasn't even sure even like as I was even seeing it like come closer, I was like, oh, I don't know if I should put this out there but I felt like I need to do this for not me but for my students as well as for my kids. Yeah. I'm glad you did it and I'm sure it took
0: a lot of bravery to publish something like that and it's quite detailed as well so I and but I love the storytelling like we need more of that especially like in our education spaces so thank you for that. So we're going to make another switch here and kind of start to wind down our conversation and before we do I typically have this lightning round with our guests and it's a series of four questions where you just answer the first thing that comes to your mind so if you're ready I can pose the first question to you
1: yeah I'm I'm ready to go I'm from Orlando it's the lightning capital of the <laughs> oh, yeah that's true <laughs> what have you read heard or watched that has influenced you the most so I've watched The International, which is a film about a banking scandal, and it shows you about the problems with the banking sector as well as international arms sales and shows you a lot of the problems that are associated with that. Mm, okay. Is that on Netflix? Yeah, I think it's a 2010 film. Okay. They show it on airplanes a lot, I think. Oh yeah, well, that's scary.
0: <laughs>
1: What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I think for me is maybe blogging. So even this past weekend, I blogged two or three blog posts, and then I deleted. <laughs> I saw that I was like, "What? You just turned out it like the holiday <laughs> yeah. just ended?" Or yeah. So the, then I actually went back and deleted two or three of them because I felt like they're just like too strong out there. Yeah, because I think people actually do read them. I already I like them. Yeah, so I, I think that has really helped me to kind of just have a place to put down my thoughts, but still have them be in the openness. It really helps me.
0: That's really cool.
1: What's the best piece of advice you've
0: received? I, I just just don't, don't listen to anyone. <laughs> <I know. laughs> I'm just thinking of the loser contract <laughs> lawyer. <laughs>
1: Finally, what is your superpower? So I think my superpower is that people underestimate me. They first of all, they think I don't speak English. Oh yeah. I was in your
0: article where like they sent over the translator and you were at the hospital. It's was like the cheek, <laughs> yes. but you speak many languages and like you did for your undergrad, like you studied all of like seven languages or something like that.
1: That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I think I had, a I had a really great program. I think I, I stumbled upon this field of comparative literature and I really enjoyed yeah. like different languages. I had just amazing professors as an undergrad. So I was really glad to to have that.
0: Yeah. Did you do
1: any South Asian literature? So I actually, I didn't end up taking the class in South Asian literature, but I did my honors thesis on it. And I did like language that was written, or literature that was written by South Asians after the partition. So I looked at the Anglo-Indian representations of culture and religion in post-partition literature. And so what one of the books I looked at was Babsi Sidwa's Cracking India. I also looked at Khushua Singh's Train to Pakistan. Another book I looked at was called Difficult Daughters, as well as I think Sunshine on a Broken Column. And so those novels were really essentially some of the conversations, and those would be similar to the conversations I would have within my own uh, family around partition and the role of memory. And I had an amazing undergraduate thesis supervisor, Dr. Nanya Kabir, who's now a professor of English literature at, at King's College in London. And she really, I think she really paved the way for me. Like I could see somebody like as an academic, like a Muslim woman academic from her. And I was really blessed to, to have her as a professor as well as a thesis advisor.
0: Yeah, gosh, the power of mentors, I tell you, it's really life-changing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Nadia, for such a diverse conversation. You talked about biofuels, which I didn't know much about. And this the concept of the climate changes. That's another thing. Like I didn't make that connection, but reading your article was like, oh yes, of course. Wow. Like it's so apparent and literal. And then just your experiences of, of being a, a Muslim woman in, in this space. So thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. So before we go, is there anything else that you would
1: like to add that you didn't get a chance to? I think it's just important to really believe in yourself. Like no one's going to believe in you the same way that you can believe in yourself and just really to just never, never get up. I think that's really like the post-it note I would put is just don't give up. Yeah. And it's replaced the (laughs) FedEx package.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you again, Nadia. And hope to stay in touch on your journey and I'll include the links so that people can read your awesome blogs and articles. So, okay. Thank you, Sapna. It was really a pleasure. Thank you again. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our changemakers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.